Ah, bienvenidos, guapo. Bien verte. So we have a, a lot of visitors with us this morning, but we have a pastor from one of our churches in town. This is Pastor Alfredo from Red Door. Do we clap here, Presbyterians? Come on now. We try not to clap here too much because we get off beat really easily, but welcome, man. We're really glad to have you guys with us this morning. So I want to begin as we dive into our text. It's always the text. It's always the word that drives us with this question. And the question is this, is there anyone here this morning, is there anyone here this morning who has anything in their life that you feel enslaved to, that you feel enslaved to? Now, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are free. You're a, you're a free slave to the righteousness of God. But I don't mean in the objective sense, but subjectively, is there anything you feel enslaved to this morning? A, a question that was haunting me this week. How many little things in our lives beckon to be our masters? Money, food, drink, right relationships, pleasing people, being perceived properly, likes or hearts or shares. And I want us to think about this as the sermon goes. What are some of the things that you maybe this morning feel enslaved to? And is there good news for you? Is there good news for you in the very words of God? There is good news, and Paul is building on his argument here as we get to the back half of Romans 6, and that God knows our name. Even as we struggle with slavery to sin or to Christ, God knows our name, and he wants us to remember his name. He wants us to remember who we are, who we are owned by. So one of our parishioners told me a story this week. We went out to, uh, to lunch together and pulled up. I was already a little bit late for a meeting, which is normal. And he said, but you have time for a joke. I said, I always have time for a joke. Yes. What's the joke? And he said, well, there's a story about a, a brand new young pastor at a small country church in Texas. Some of you know what that's like. And he comes the first Sunday, he preaches his first sermon, and after his first sermon, a sweet older lady in the church comes up to introduce herself. She says, hello, my name is Miss Virginia Johnson, and I just want you to know, that was the worst sermon I've heard in a long time. <laughs> and of course, he's a little shaken and, you know, hi, nice to meet you, ma'am, and learns throughout the next week that this is a bit of an infamous lady in the church, and so he spends a bit more time in study and preparation and preaches the next Sunday, preaches the gospel as best he can. And then he sees Miss Virginia Johnson walking up to talk to him after the service. So he sees her and, oh, hello, Miss Johnson. Good to see you. And she says, well, I got to tell you something. Your sermon last week, it wasn't really that bad. I just wanted you to remember my name. <laughs> and he did. And he never forgot it. So what's Paul doing here? I mean, what's Paul doing with this whole analogy of slavery, law, servanthood, bond servanthood in the Greco-Roman context? What Paul is doing is he's now delivering the second of a one-two punch combo in Romans 6 as he answers objections and shows us the implications of the gospel. 
So as we go through Romans, chapters 1 to 16, we never actually move past verse 17 of chapter 1, and we never move past that in our Christian lives either. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation for all of those who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile, because in this gospel, the righteousness The covenant justice and justifying work of God is revealed not by your works, but by faith. By faith to faith, or by our faith in the true and better faithful Israelite, Jesus, who is the Messiah who fulfills all things. Paul has spent chapters 1 through 5 illuminating different angles, different light shined in through the diamond of the gospel to, to show us how beautiful this good news is. But now in chapter 6, 6 through 8, he's dealing with what it implies, and there are significant objectors in the church. That's why Paul repeats himself. And so in some ways, this week is similar to last. Last week is, look, you, who you really are in Christ is dead to sin. So be alive in Christ. And this week, Paul takes up this analogy in human terms of servanthood and says, look, you're not a slave to sin. You you are a slave to the righteousness of God and you're free because you're owned by God. And in Christ, there is freedom. But you see, for many of the, the Jews in this little Roman church, Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah, all this talk of grace and gospel had gone a little too far. They heard what Paul was saying and it it seemed to them like, oh, okay, so I get it. So grace is like a a credit card then. I can just do whatever I want. God credits me his righteousness and now I have the ultimate Southwest card, miles for days, and I can just do whatever I want, live however I want. Keep on sinning. Why not sin? And again, Paul is writing into this, this context in Rome where the Jews who have believed in Jesus are eager to maintain their culture. All these Gentiles are putting their hope in Jesus, but they don't have the Old Testament. They don't have Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or the prophets. And so there's a sense, we need to remember this, there's a sense in which Paul, in showing us what the gospel implies, is not just some sort of armchair theologian. Now, the book of Romans Romans is agreed upon by scholars to be magisterial as far as a rational and logical example of the best of Greek thinking. Paul's argument is tight. It flows from one section to the next, but Paul is not a professional academic. He is a missionary. He wants this church to be healthy. He wants Jews and Gentiles to be in Christ and healthy, to be living out the love of God in their own community, to be planting churches in Rome, and to get him from Rome to Spain where he can plant more churches. So he has to deal with these objections. And it's a good question. Some are lovers of the law, but they fear, perhaps, that that this gospel is a little too good to be true. And if we give up the law, then then maybe we fly, the pendulum swings into license. Just do whatever you want, live however you want. Holy schmoly, who cares? All I got to do is pray and God forgives me and we're good. So how is this a good question then? Why not sin? It's a good question because the law was given to restrain the sin of man. The law is good, by the way. 
And when I say the law, I don't just mean the rules that God gives in the Old Testament. I mean Torah. I mean this, this thing where God says, I am your God, you are my people. Here is how you can live most holy, most fully. Here's how you can flourish. Sin has brought you out of the garden, but if you will obey me in love, I will bring you back into the garden. I will make you instruments of the re-creation. So the law restrains sin. But Paul is quick to point out, yes, it can restrain sin, but it is powerless to provide obedience. The law is like coming upon you as a sinner living in a dirty motel room. Being a slave to sin is like living your life in a dirty motel room. It's gnarly. It doesn't get clean very much. There isn't much food. You've got microwave and ramen and stuff all over the floor. The law comes in to the life of sin, not as one who cleans the room. The law comes in like a blacklight. Have you seen those YouTube videos? Don't watch them. Don't watch them after you eat. I'm just saying. The law comes into your dirty motel room with the lights down low so no one can see the deeds of darkness, and it pulls back the sheets and whips out a blacklight and says, look, actually, it's way worse than you thought. You know, you're not just a person who's in need of medicine. You're dead in your sins and your trespasses. You need resurrection. You need the power of recreation. And so, yes, the law gives us a window into God's perfect moral character, and it gives us a way to obey him, but it is powerless unless we are first gripped by grace. And it's always been that way. Don't forget Paul's argument in Romans 4. Abraham believed, and it was credited as righteousness. Moses and the Israelites were given the grace of God as they passed through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. And after being saved by grace, only then did they have the power to obey the laws given to them for their good. So we're not under the law. We're under grace. But when Paul says that, people in that little church in Rome are triggered. Okay, if we're under grace, then why not sin big? And Paul's emphatic answer to this, in the Greek, it is a double command. By no means. By no means. It kind of reminds me of Anchorman Brick when he yells out loud noises. Anyone? Okay, three of you. Congratulations. Um, that's Paul here. I mean, he's saying this as loudly and emphatically as he can. No. The answer to why not sin or why not sin big isn't, oh, grace is a credit card. And so Paul's main point here in this text, and there are really three ways he teases this out. His main point is you need to remember who owns you. Remember whose you are. Remember where your, your freedom and your love and your power comes from. Remember who owns you. So first, Paul goes into this contrast. Remember that you're a slave to what you obey. Now, it's hard to, to use these sort of terms. It maybe rubs us a little bit wrong. I should say, uh, in a definition of terms, that Slavery in the Greco-Roman Empire, although it was at times wicked, was not like the sort of thing we had here before the Civil War. It wasn't chattel slavery. It wasn't dehumanizing in that same way. There was not ownership of a person's body and soul. Indeed, in, in the empire, it was more like indentured servitude or serfdom. There were people who had great debts, and they would actually put themselves under a yoke of a master to pay those debts off. And so in many ways, it was nicer 
than the slavery that we understand in our own history here. It was nicer, but it was also different in the sense that people were working toward their freedom. But one thing was true about all of the douloi, all of the bond servants, and that was this. If you were a bond servant, you only had one master. Paul says you're a slave to what you obey. To quote, to quote the great Old Testament prophet, Old Testament by which I mean pre-internet, Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. So let's think about ourselves. What are we prone to serve? When life gets tough and stressful and relationships are stressed and money is tight and you're feeling down, where do we go? Where do we go to cope? Where do we go to numb? You may be a Christian and therefore you have the form and status of being justified, but if you're like me, so often we have the function of being enslaved by all these little and lesser voices that make promises they cannot keep. So you're a slave to what you obey. This is another way of saying we are all worshipers. We all believe. We all put ourselves under some authority, some system of belief, some worldview, some idea, some authority under which we say, okay, you can have my, my time and my talent and my treasure. I trust you. That's what Paul means when he says, you're going to present your members to someone. You're, you're not just some like rugged individualist who does your own thing in your own way every time. And even if you are, that's just a different form of idolatry. We are all worshipers, but perhaps more importantly, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. So the master whom we obey doesn't just make demands over us, but eventually shapes us. It's the spiritual version of Stockholm Syndrome. So whatever our standard of authority is, or as Paul says, our pattern of teaching is, that becomes our boss, our master. And Paul is quick to make this point. Not only that you're a slave to whom you obey, but sin is a bad master. And a sin is a bad word. We're not allowed to use that word in 2019. We're like 10 years away from me getting a parking ticket for even saying the word sin. But let me explain what I mean by sin, okay? It's not the tisk tisk shame on you. The heart of sin inherited from Adam and his first choice to be his own God merely means that in our heart of hearts, apart from God's grace, and in our actions, we love ourselves ultimately more than we love anything else. And therefore, because sin is inherently selfish, it alienates us. And you've seen this in your own life. Man, when you go down that road of selfishness, selfishness in relationships or in eating or in drinking or in pornography or in money or in whatever, not only are you pushed away from God, but you are pushed away from others. The self as a God is a failure. And this is for two reasons. One, because the pleasure is fleeting and we know that. But even more insidious is this. Not only is the pleasure of sin fleeting, but the God of sin is never satisfied. Never satisfied. So you keep coming with your yourself and your stuff and putting it up on the altar. And sin is a bad master who's never satisfied. Now, the trick of our, of our own psyches here is to believe that we're somehow in control. Not only are we good at image management, but some of us have taken up the profession of sin management. I got this, don't worry. It's not gonna get that bad. It's not gonna get out of control. 
I can keep it under wraps. Reminds me of a story I heard recently about a Bengal in the Bronx. So police were called to an apartment in the Bronx borough of New York City. And when they opened the door, they were terrified to see a full-grown Bengal tiger in the apartment whose owner laid on the floor deceased. It took them a couple hours to call in the right folks to tranquilize the tiger and eventually get it to a zoo. But when they went into the apartment and began to piece the story together, they were surprised by what they found. You see, this man was just a simple lover of animals. And somehow, illegally, he had procured this Bengal tiger when it was a cub. And all in his journals, he had written, I've got this. I will be the one to control this tiger. I will be the one to domesticate it. This tiger is going to know me. It's going to grow up to love me. It would never hurt me until the tiger grew up and expressed its full tigerness. And in a single blow across the man's face, brought his life to an end. You see, sin is like that. We're not in control of it. It's a trap and it's a lie. The master of sin, it always takes you further than you want to go. It always requires more of you than you have to give. That's why Paul draws the contrast. It's not to beat up the Christians. Oh, thanks for coming to church and let's harp on sin. It's so they can remember. Look, there's two masters and one is really bad. Which brings us to verse 17. Because here Paul introduces this new and glorious truth for those who have put their faith in Christ. Thanks be to God, he says. Look, as you remember the two masters, don't get stuck there. Remember also, thanks be to God, that you are owned by the Lord. You obey God. He is your savior. He is your master. You are free slaves, free in the righteousness of God to become fully human in who Christ has made you to be. You see, he who owns you isn't a bad master. He who owns you is good. And that's why, and here Paul is answering the question of those who would say, well, what now? Should we just sin? Grace is a credit card? Here's why Paul says, our fear of law swinging all the way to license is foolish. Because if you have been gripped by the grace of God, if Jesus has met you and said, look, I know you've tried. We've tried, haven't we? So many of us remember our past lives. We do have things. You know, I don't, it's not like every day I wake up regretting. But before I was a Christian, and then even then, it's been a very slow boil. It's like cooking pasta at 9,000 feet. There are things of which, when I think back, I'm, I'm ashamed. Before I was a Christian that I did lusting for, for power and pleasure and doing things to hurt other people. I didn't care. It felt good. But once you are gripped by the grace of Jesus, once you are rescued, once you are loved, once you are gripped by that grace, something changes. You don't go from under law to I can do whatever you want. You realize you have a new and good master whose love for you now shapes and empowers you to forgive yourself, to forgive others, because God forgives you. So it's not a slippery slope. That's Paul's response to the argument. It's, I know it sounds too good to be true, and it almost is. As John said last week, if you're preaching the gospel correctly, it should almost sound too good to be true. True. 
but it doesn't fly you over into licentiousness. No, the love of God is now what constrains you to obey him, not because you have to. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of what the gospel implies, not because you have to, but because you want to. So I knew a a young lady in college and she came to faith in Jesus around her junior year of college. And before that, she was, you know, just living normal college life, partying, having fun, going to the bars, sleeping with guys, doing what you do. And by the way, I'm not being condemning and judgmental here. I'm saying actually what Paul says, hey, before you were a slave to righteousness, you were free according to righteousness. She wasn't some kind of bad person off the deep end. She was a normal non-Christian girl in college. Jesus gripped her. And about a month later, she ended up seeing one of her ex-boyfriends. In fact, a guy that she used to live with. And he saw her and he's like, well, where have you been? I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you down at Anodyne or whatever the weird bars were back in the day at UNM. I haven't seen you out and about. Where have you been? I haven't seen you hanging around. And she goes, well, not really doing that much anymore. I've actually been at church. This guy looks at her. He's like, oh, no. No, you have become one of those. You're in a cult. Now you're one of those angry, bigoted, ridiculous, Bible-thumping Christians. Great. And this girl had only known Jesus for a month, so I know this was the Holy Spirit. You know what she said to him? She said, listen up, buddy. I'm not down at the bar because I can't be. And I'm not still living with you because I can't It's not that I can't do those things anymore. It's that God's grace is so good, I don't want to do those things anymore. And I think we need to be careful here because as Christians, we know, hey, guess what, Greg? And I will raise my hand first. There are still things that we want to do that don't honor the Lord. And we'll get to that in Romans 7. Paul's going to spend an entire chapter dealing with that issue. He says we are being sanctified, which means being made holy. We are being set apart, but it's like the stock market. It's a, it's a hilly, holy ride. It's like Texas hill country. Some days you're up, some days you're down, but you have been put into a new status. You are justified. You are alive in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a servant of the covenant justice, the righteousness of God. So why don't we sin big? What's the answer to those who love the law? Not because we can't, but by the grace of God, we don't want to. And that's what true freedom means. God is changing and reforming and conforming our desires. We are being transformed into the image of Christ who is the first fruits of all the new creation. We're not in heaven yet. It's now and not yet. There's tension, but that is where God is taking us slowly and surely. And that is true freedom. Again, freedom isn't do whatever I want. Consider your freedom to drive. You are free to drive in Santa Fe. Some of you need to slow down a little bit. Some of y'all need to speed up a little bit. And I know because I'm an expert. I'm kidding. But aren't you glad there's some rules to the road? Especially in Santa Fe, the drivers we have here, Lord have mercy. I mean, aren't you glad that there are lines on the road? And aren't you glad that it's illegal to go the wrong way up the road? And it's theoretically illegal if there's traffic to drive your huge truck into the median and go around everybody. Aren't you glad that there are rules to the road and therefore freedom for us as we exercise the freedom of driving? You can have a fast car and you can get to the speed limit as fast as you want. And it's fun and it's joyful. 
But true freedom isn't the lack of boundaries. True freedom is constrained within benevolent and loving boundaries that exist for our good. And here I just want to emphasize that God's, God's rules, God's law, it wasn't given to beat Israel up and like, oh, I just want you to be little subjugated peons, the plebes who do my will because I'm an angry white bearded guy with a lightning bolt, so watch out. That's not why God revealed his moral character. God saw that sin was killing people and he wanted them to know the truth. The truth would set them free. But the only one who can keep the truth and thus set the captives free is God himself. And that's why Christ had to come. You see, this is what makes us obedient to the heart. Jesus has come to set us free, not because he had to, but because he looked upon his children. He loved those who were sheep without a shepherd. And by his grace, he wanted to. And that leads Paul to his last little point. You're a slave to what you obey. Thankfully, you obey God. And in verse 20, he says, you know, you know the taste. You know where these roads lead. Different fruit with different ends. You know where these things lead. You've been there. Reminds me of the movie, The Matrix, which is one of my favorite movies. Anybody else love The Matrix? All right, extra crowns in heaven for you. Um, such a good movie. But when they first get Neo, right, he's in the car and they pull a little robot deal out of his deal, his belly button, and he's sitting there and he's freaked out. And all of a sudden, he tries to hop out the car. It's raining and the door opens and it's a long, dark, rainy road. And I think it's Trinity or one of them who leans over to him and says, Neo, you've been down that road. You know where that road leads. So Paul wants to end here. He wants to put an exclamation point on both the contrast and the glory of being free servants in God's righteousness through an examination of the fruit. Being slave to sin leads to bad fruit. It leads to impurity. It leads us presenting our members to things which ultimately degrade. Like in Genesis, where there is formless and void and chaos and degradation and entropy. And of course, Satan's big lie is this. You have to understand the enemy. When you're tempted to sin in your flesh, and your flesh needs no help with that temptation, by the way. It's not always spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's just you, all right? So when you're tempted to sin, what does the devil do? He rolls up on you and goes, oh, do it. No big deal. It's great. It's not a big deal. God doesn't, I mean, God, God just wants to keep you away from having fun. I mean, what's the harm? Nobody else is really involved. You know, you're just alone. It's not all these justifications. And then what happens? The second you or me gives in, the seed of sin gives birth to the bad fruit. Immediately that same buddy who was saying no big deal comes around to throw the burden of condemnation on your soul. I can't believe you just did that. You should be so ashamed. You're unclean. How dare you? God doesn't love you. How could you even love yourself? You are so fake. You're such a hypocrite. You're not real. You're not a, look, you go to church and you act like you're a Christian. I know who you really are. You know those voices in your own mind. That's why being a slave to sin is such rotten fruit. But to be a slave to righteousness means that God is in work to make you holy. That the good work he has started in you, he will bring to completion. And how does he do it? friend of mine 
who I'm in a little small group with, said this. He said, God often brings us to our need of him through our own desperation. It's often not through the easy and the good times, but through our weakness and our brokenness that God reminds us, sin is a bad master, but I am good. And not only am I good, but I am making you good. I am for your good. You know the difference between good and bad fruit. Take these amazing glory to Jesus peaches that that guy sells down on Cerritos. You know what I'm talking about? They're like $50 a peach. They're almost worth it. All right, go buy two peaches. Throw one on the ground and see how it's doing after a week. You know what rotten fruit looks like? You know what it smells like and tastes like? Then take one of those peaches and put it inside and nurture it with a, a swamp cooler and an occasional spritz of water. And when you pick it up, you smell the sweetness. You can tell that it's ripe. Jesus said, by their fruit, they will be known. So in the same way that bad fruit leads to destruction and destructive behavior, it leads to the undoing and the chaos of Genesis, good fruit leads to renewal and recreation. It leads to the justice of God in the world and the new heavens and the new earth of revelation. Here is a good point to apply this. Simply asking the question, as we struggle, how do you smell? Not how do you smell right now, because I would fail that test. But how do you smell in general? How's your fruit? How's the fruit that's coming out of your life? Because if what we're becoming is, you know, holy huddle, fundy Christians who exclude everybody because we have cornered the market on truth and no one else is allowed in. And in fact, when I see weeds in the median and a homeless guy on the corner and everything else in the world is everybody else's problem and I know I'm right. If that's what we're becoming, guess what? That is bad fruit. That's slavery to sin. But if you look out at the hurt and the wounds and the brokenness of the world and you see that God has met you in your hurt in your wounds and your brokenness, then the good fruit of the gospel is to get out there and do something about it. If there's weeds that are waiting to be weeded, then you better go get your weed whacker. If there's neighbors of yours that need to come around your kitchen table and have good food and good drink and be blessed and just tell me how you're doing. I just want to love you. No agenda. No, I'm not about to take you into the basement and sell you soap. No agenda here. Just care about you. You're made in the image of God. If there are orphans and fatherless in areas in our own city where the justice of God needs to be done, the good fruit of the gospel is us going to do something about it. And what's so good is that God says, if you do, you'll be blessed. If you do, you'll be blessed. That's the good life. If you if you love me, Jesus says, because I've loved you, obey what I command because this will make you glorious. This will make you whole. It really is better to trust the Lord. It really is better to have a clear conscience. It really is better to do the works that God has given you to do in ordinary ways and have some fun while you do it. It really is better and you know the fruit tastes good. So why not sin? Why not sin? Because Paul wants us to remember the gospel because in the gospel, God has remembered you and as God remembers you, he will bear the fruit through you of remembering others. And so the grace of God that grips us wells up with joy to obey, to please our Father. Again, this is so beautiful. Step by step, little by little, growth by jagged growth, not because we have to, 
But because to be a free slave to the righteousness of God is so good that more and more we want to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for Romans 6, this, this twofold answering to these objections where people thought, ah, grace means we throw away the law or grace means we swing the pendulum over to being licentious lawbreakers. No, it is your love in Christ for us that now constrains us to obedience and also empowers and makes joyful that same obedience. What good news that we are known, fully known and fully loved so that we might obey, not because we have to, but because we want to. Amen.